This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. In these conversations, we make sense of what's next. Join me, my co-hosts, and my guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hi, everyone. Stina Heikele here, co-host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast. Today, we're having a conversation with the long-term advisor and co-founder of Boundaryless, Lisa Gansky. Lisa is not only a seasoned entrepreneur, investor, and environmentalist, but was also a protagonist in the early days of the internet revolution and had a chance to play a role in the iconic demise of Kodak in the wake of digital photography, unfortunately most as a Cassandra whose recommendations went partially unheard. This is a checkpoint episode where we talk to Lisa about what we've been discovering so far in the research for the white paper and get her valuable take focusing on the role of incumbents in adapting to a fast-changing world. She talks about the emerging space between the no more and the not yet. In this in-between space, where most of the potential to reinvent organizing seems to lay, ecosystems appear to be a candidate driver of transformation for incumbents, although questions abound regarding their maturity. Here we go. Enjoy this Checkpoint episode with Lisa Gansky. Hello, everyone. Tonight, I'm here with my usual co-host, Stina. Hello, everyone. And we are so pleased to have with us tonight, uh, tonight because we are recording on, on an overnight time slot. Tonight with us, there is Lisa Gansky from Canada at the moment, if I'm not wrong. Right, Lisa? Yes, today I'm Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks very much, uh, Lisa. You are in Canada, actually, because we are into this mess you know this crazy corona crisis and someone is in lockdown someone is stuck uh, somewhere you know like, like you but what i wanted to use as, a, as an introduction for this conversation is really this idea that again we are into a crisis and uh, this time is not just that the monsters are, are only the small ones you know because uh, it's not just about this very small virus it's also about the monsters that we could see in society these days, you know, because we are living this age of uh, where the old, you know, it's like uh, Michelle Bowens a few weeks ago made us remember that the old is going so fast and the new is not yet there. And as quoting Gramsci, Michelle said, this could be the, the age of monsters. So how do you feel you about that? Well, that's, I mean, Michelle, who I adore and uh, look forward to maybe having a conversation, all of us one day. Uh, I feel that it's that he yes, um, and I want to just say thank you very much to you and Stina for inviting me and for uh, you know sharing your late evening here. It's late afternoon, but you're after dinner, so thanks very much. Um, with respect to where we are in the world, you know, in the midst of a crisis, for me, I think we are seeing something rather extraordinary. It looks extraordinary to us. But what I think is that we are in this very unusual moment for humans. Maybe it's becoming more familiar to us, but I think also it's something that's very that we should treasure because we're in um, this inflection point between no more and not yet. That the world as we knew it, you know, what we depended on, what we trusted, who we trusted, institutions, governance, governments, currencies, safety. All of these things are fundamental, built into invisible and built into our society and to our culture and part of who we are and how we see our world. And for 
Now, you know, depending on when your personal clock started on this, it, it could be a decade or more that we start to see that the institutions uh, that were once so powerful are uh, weakening and or crumbling. And that basically from the 20th century, a lot of the philosophy and notion was that this is a top-down structure. It's very Cartesian uh, in an approach and that we as humans are going to shape nature around production systems, around, you know, building cities and basically, you know, making the world work for us as humans. I think in the not yet side, the, the part that we can see if we squint, many of us can anticipate how we can see these things coming together, whether they're systems of trust, a decentralized like blockchain clusters or collectives of people or ecosystems or teams coordinating in curious and interesting ways, um, collaboration with nature rather than having to try to overcome nature. We are seeing that, for me anyway, it looks like the 21st century, our biggest challenges are n nature is trying to shape us. And that, you know, if we look at climate or something like the a pandemic, we're seeing that you know, our will doesn't just get manifest because. So, you know, I, I think we're in a moment in time where we could either work together. And I think, that, you know, I see when I put a special kind of glasses on, you know, I can see the world line up where there's a, a group of characters who are working really hard to Velcro together the, the no more. And there's a whole other group of us that are working to bring forward to create a language around new metrics and to shape and realize the not yet. And, and so, you know, a lot of how I've been thinking and the teams that we've been working with and certainly, you know, within and around boundaryless has been looking at how value is being created in these kinds of, you know, almost uncoordinated um, sort of very organic in the way that they emerge kinds of teams and structures and, you know, it's going against a lot of the kind of bureaucratic, very top-down, ready, aim, 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 aim kind of military model that was the 20th century. So, you know, I think that we're in this really very, um, like a year ago, looked much smaller, but I think we're in a giant chasm between the no more and not yet, and we need to make a leap pretty quickly. Um, so I'm very keen, uh, Simona, to have the conversation with you because part of uh, the work that has been happening around the PDT, the Platform Design Toolkit, and the, the teams and systems that have been discussed and articulated is really looking at whether it's the UN or corporations or startups or communities trying to understand how we build trust and value and make risk visible in a world that's you know, changing mm -hmm. so quickly. Well, one question that uh, came to my mind where you were doing this quick first reflection, it's essentially the idea that can they no more uh, create the not yet? <laughs> you know, can can the, this bridge between the no more and the not yet happen inside existing institutions, inside existing markets? 
a few weeks ago, talking with John Rob, uh, he pointed us this uh, TIMN framework that we are using uh, more often uh, in conversations, uh, which basically with which David Ronfeld uh, made the point that uh, essentially these evolutions between stages, let's say, of civilization kind of layer on top of each other. And another contributor to our community a few days ago uh, made the parallel with uh, spiral dynamics. So my question is, how is, in practical terms, uh, an existing incumbent organization, if you see this possible, uh, going to explore this not yet and and somehow enable this uh, not yet possible organizing as part of its way of being a brand and an organization. So that's probably the biggest question we, we need to ask now. How how does an existing organization embodies this new, not yet uh, ways of organizing? You know, I would say that probably 10 years or more ago, I would have been extremely optimistic about the not yet being able to do both things at the same time, kind of fix the old enough so that it continues to function. And at the same time, create new. I've been using, there's a Israeli uh, researcher from years ago who created, named Yitzchak Adizas, who created a corporate life cycle. And it's just a Gaussian curve, normal life cycle, bell curve. But basically, you know, on the left side, when, when you start off the life cycle and its birth, all the way to the other side of death, if you run a vertical line up the middle of the chart, at the peak of the of the curve. Everything to the left side of the line is value creation. And everything to the right side of the line is value captured. And what, what's happened, I think, is if you look at, you know, any of the stock exchanges or the way in which capitalism has come to work, or not work, but function, is essentially that there's an optimization of capturing value. And the risk associated with creating value has, you know, it has kind of been skewed so that we have, you know, the companies that are the, the largest corporations and the largest market caps on the stock exchanges globally are companies that in many instances haven't actually innovated in a very long time, but they are just, you know, squeezing juice from the fruit. So we, what happened, like a real example that I have is years ago, we started a digital photography company and sold it to Kodak. And I ran uh, digital photography in Kodak. And the chairman and CEO of the company at the time, a, a lovely human and a really bright man named Dan Karp, used to, uh, and he was what Kodak used to say, like somebody that was with the company for a long time, they'd say, you know, he bleeds yellow because they were so you know, so into the company. And Dan definitely bled yellow. And he, and he sa- used to say to me, you know, what's the slope of the line, which was code for, you know, how far, how quickly do you think film is going to fall off before digital picks up? And they really were wanting to speculate a lot about, you know, the slope of the line of that curve. And I would always take his hand and make it vertical and basically say, it's going to free fall that as soon as, you know, people start to really be able to inexpensively acquire uh, digital photographs and figure out how to, you know, distribution on digital happens fully, 
that the, the cost of film goes to zero, right? That basically you can take infinite number, theoretically, uh, infinite number of photos with your digital camera. Whereas Kodak made all of its money on the film side. So, you know, okay, what does that mean? It means that from the fixing the old, you know, Kodak invented the digital camera. They owned all of the intellectual property for digital capture. They could have easily been the leader, but for one thing. And it's kind of what I think happens to a lot of large corporations that have so much profit margin in a very, very ancient business model is basically they have a mature business model. They have beat their old competition, but they don't see the new competitors coming. And they basically are looking at profit margin as the only relevant metric. So they would turn down many, many ideas for, you know, for new, for new work, for new products, for new markets that we would bring to them simply because the margins weren't, you know, what I would refer to as the Colombian drug lord margin of like 85 or 90% that they made on film. And I think that that phenomenon is just, whether I've worked in banks or, or manufacturing companies, retailers, the, it's very, very difficult for um, a big company that's trying to, that especially if the company is public, to try to maintain the, there's nothing to see here, we're doing fine kind of mantra so that they don't lose their shareholders whilst building a whole new not yet model. And so if I think that if um, established brands or established platforms or companies are going to be um, at all effective in doing the not yet side of things, it has to come through a, a highly diverse decentralized collection of ecosystems that allow them to, and a culture that allows them to invite and shape and support to whatever extent is necessary, uh, new ideas, new kinds of talent and new models that are actually going to, you know, end up competing with whatever they've been doing. And I think that the hardest part of all of that is culture. You know, that culture is the great amplifier from a network effect perspective. You know, if you have a culture that is open and generous and curious and reaches out and, you know, that's the sort of mood that people are in and that's the the orientation that you find companies in, like Gorin Associates comes to mind or even Dyson or, you know, there's a, a, a number of companies that I can think of that have a... Arvind Institute, which is an eye institute in India, there's a there's a clear mission, there's an orientation, uh, Patagonia, you know, that are looking at, you know, here's our mission, this is these are our questions, we don't really care where the next big ideas come from, we're going to accelerate moving the world into solar or creating platforms that are equitable or bringing, um, you know, awareness to the environment through waking people up about the clothes they wear and the food they eat. And those kinds of companies, I think we see, you know, embracing diversity and ecosystems and curiosity, but bureaucratic, like, um, you know, a lot. And I know, uh, Simona, that you've worked recently with Hire. I think, you know, it's very rare to find a large corporation that's able to maintain their existing models and systems and infrastructure and teams and culture 
whilst also trying to accelerate and shape the not yet. And so I guess that's a very long-winded way of saying I'm very skeptical now that the, the culture that's required on the mature business side when you're squeezing juice from the fruit is a very different kind of culture than the one that um, invites curiosity and provocation and experimentation and the things that are necessary to make our future, to pull the future forward. So, so Lisa, maybe that uh, the ecosystem is this bridge, you know, so, so based on a reflection of what you are just sharing, it looks like this idea that the industrial organization cannot invent this future. I want I don't want to say the future because somehow otherwise we're going to just self-perpetuate this idea of future that brought us here. But um, it looks like the industrial organization cannot really imagine this future that is not yet here. So maybe using ecosystems is this bridge, you know, between the no more and the not yet. But my question is, you know, of course, we know the ecosystems are different, drive different innovations. For sure, they are future sensing engines. But my question is, is the ecosystem changing fast enough to inspire a new institution, to create a new type of uh, enabling institution? Because sometimes my impression in working within ecosystems, especially entrepreneurial ecosystems that are, uh, you know, for example, citizen-led and something like that, is that there is such a huge gap between the skills, capabilities, and uh, potential in the ecosystem. Sometimes it looks like the gap is not just on the institutional side, but also on the ecosystem side, in the entrepreneur side. It, it's a, a gap that is educational, it's epistemological. So, so the question is also if the ecosystems are going to ask to the institutions to change and transform. But where are they uh, leading? Uh, from where are they leading? Where are they going from, from your point of view? I might ask you to rephrase the final question, but I think what you're pointing to is that is you're pointing to the idea that we choose people around us, the ecosystems that are around any of us are insufficient for making the transformation. That's my my conclusion from I think what you're asking, which is that, you know, corporations that have a lot of assets, that have accumulated a lot of assets and appear to have a lot of value, confuse value with assets and accumulation, right? I think that the the agility and the adaptability and the engine for innovation and change, um, the engine for for learning, you know, because that's the the punchline, right? If the world's changing faster than we can learn, then the key to everything is how fast can we learn? <laughs> and what are the necessary, you know, how would I organize my sphere of influence, my life and my work, if my goal was to really uh, immerse myself in, in the right kinds of questions and surround myself with the right kinds of people to learn? And then if I do that at the level of community or company or mission, you know, then that starts to answer the question of how would we shape ourselves? You know, what would we, how would we navigate to discover new kinds of people, interesting conversations, new and better questions? And to me, the root of a lot of that, I want to just talk for a second about fear, because I think that what I've seen and also certainly what I feel being, you know, one of the earthlings, uh, as well, is um, essentially that 
when we're confronted with with the holy shit moment, like things just like you, at some point, you know, I'm coming to meetings in Montreal on my way to Italy and end up in Canada probably for a year. Who knows how long I'll be here? It's lovely. And the Canadians couldn't be any nicer. And, and I feel really lucky to be here. But it's a surprise. And it wasn't part of a plan. And it and it's, comes from sort of a realization and saying, wow, the world's literally changing fast. Um, it's no longer a great idea to get on a plane and do these things. I'm going to just stay where I am. And the fear that the choices are, like, we could either move to, we don't know what's going to happen next. Like, wow, that's really interesting. I'm going to talk to people, read some things, you know, be curious, or I'm going to be like, holy crap, this isn't what I want. I don't know what to do. Things are terrible and shrink down, continue to shrink down. So fear is a a closing off emotion that makes us feel that we're, you know, basically being threatened. And curiosity is the opposite, you know, and, and opens us up. And the thing that you're asking, I feel is the piece about empathy, which is basically saying that you know, if I grow my ecosystem out of, you know, fear or curiosity from where I am and who I am, from a tribal perspective, I'm going to continue to grow from, you know, you and Stina introduced me to people who you know, who introduced me to people that they know. And maybe five or six layers out, I start to have my reality shaken. But for the most part, if we just go within those kinds of spheres at a kind of you know, normal exploratory process. I don't know that necessarily I'm going to build the kind of very agile collection of ecosystems or immerse myself in the right kinds of conversations. That diversity is kind of what's necessary to learn. You know, the the more um, shocking to my my social reality, you know, the more likely I am to have to lean in and say, well, why do you, what do you mean by that? Well, how does that work? And how did, how come, why do you distribute land in that way? And well, who, what do you mean? No one holds the title to the land. Well, how do, how do you then distribute value? Well, who does the work? And you start asking a lot of questions. Then suddenly I'm, I'm deeply into a whole other conversation when I look at indigenous communities or a cooperative structure versus you know, a, a kind of um, listed on the stock exchange, 100 year old corporation. So so I feel like I agree with you that the I think you were making the point that the ecosystem is the bridge from the from the no more to the not yet. But I think whether, you know, we find ourselves in the community of people who are trying to, like as somebody who has been in the not yet most of my life and career, I would just say, I, there's a level of kind of BS about that also, which is that even though I feel I reach out in extraordinary ways, I realize when things like this happen in the world that I haven't reached out enough, that I there's whole levels of society and communities and challenges and realities that are completely foreign to me. And, and so I think that a big part of the business of building resilience or learning and agility is really the empathy of understanding how to listen to each other when we don't understand any of the words. And I don't mean English, Italian, Finnish. I'm talking about, you know, the ontology 
underneath what's driving our point of view. Mm -hmm. What's clear is that we have no more and not yet. We have in each of those very different, what I call social operating systems, cultures, ways of seeing things, and that I have yet to see an example of the no more that has also been the birthplace for the not yet in a way that is profound and sustains. And so even though I would I would be hopeful that the no more could be the birthplace of the not yet, it looks like that actually doesn't happen or hasn't happened in real life. And then with respect to the idea of ecosystems and learning engines, the speed with which change is happening and the vastness with which change is happening, both, you know, like biological mutations, as well as like, I hate to use this, but the COVID virus is, is a very, very powerful and very effective at a, as a virus. It's, it's very successful as a virus. And one of the things I've been asking myself is how do we learn from that in terms of how do we become successful in that way? In a way like um, capitalism and humans have been able to spread different sorts of memes or ideas or, and have impact. Right now, because we're dealing with, one, a pandemic and two, climate change, with the opportunity to make the world really make our world in, in sort of a, hopefully, a, a, a more regenerative and balanced, equal way, we can ask a lot of questions about how who we need to bring into the mix to have those interactions. But the reality, I guess, is that a lot of the power, the historical power, uh, which is largely bound up in infrastructure, lives in the no more. And the power of the not yet is really the power of ingenuity and innovation and and agility and learning, you know, fundamentally. And so I guess that's where, Stina, I was, because you've worked with OECD and the UN and organizations that have been working in local and global ways, but have, you know, and don't, and don't perceive metrics as economic, though economic is a portion of it. It has, there's, there's a very different perspective that's taken about what effective action or success looks like and who the customer or the constituents are. So I'm just curious when we start thinking about empathy and vast ecosystems and trust across communities and cultures, you know, what, what have you seen in your work? I was actually thinking as you spoke about some recent reflections that we've had um, in our research and is. It's a little bit about that idea of the fact that the communication structure of an organization also sort of mirrors the way that it's it's organized in a way. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about those, <laughs> the big institutions like you, you mentioned, and how they are now suddenly forced to start to communicate and work in a very different way because of you know, the restrictions that are being put on people's movements. And and it's suddenly you see this very interesting uh, almost shift in in the way that, that things are being organized because of these new kind of ways of remote work and communication. So I guess what 
what is interesting here from my perspective, and then um, I don't know what you think about it, is that you you think about this world of no more and not yet, like you you were mentioning. And my question then in that context would be, could this have an impact on making that link between no more, not yet, uh, making these organizations that might have been put in place to actually serve a public good, to actually work in new ways that might be more efficient or more apt to actually face the kind of challenges that are ahead of us. So that's that's maybe one one reflection that I <laughs> that I throw back. Mm-hmm. From that, because I think uh, when you talk about like connecting communities and having impact, I think that's sort of a, a way that I see it as probably in in the sort of industrial model where things have been very siloed and very sort of not systemic in the way of working. This might actually be an, a chance to to rework some of the bolts and nuts of these organizations to actually make them more fit for purpose. Yeah, I mean, the the organizations have, like you're saying, I mean, I think a a lot of these public good organizations that have existed at a global scale have been very slow. And you're, you know, they have all they have all the bureaucracy and they have the downside of big corporations without the upside, right, In, in many cases. And I think maybe if these organizations are effective at operating as you know, kind of constellations of communities and local local communities able to see each other and collaborate in more, you know, ad hoc ways. That gives the organization a lot more, that gives the platform that the organization maybe uses or, or supports, contributes to a lot more capacity than, than sort of this one-headed monster <laughs> you know, 20th century one-headed monster that's very klutzy and, and laggardly. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in many ways, the ego and culture shape how organizations are structured, but also how they operate, you know. And if there's a, a community of peers rather than, you know, he's the boss of him, who's the boss of her, who's, the you know, up, up a chain, it's it's a it's a fundamentally different way to to create and to and to test and to like distribute ideas or solutions if we think about um you know when simona was asking just about the question of can how do we get from no more to not yet and is there a bridge you know can can a company do that um i mean maybe it's more sort of like a zip line you know where where <laughs> You know, you would you have to uh, the kind of culture that's required to be not yet is is the antithesis of the culture for no more. Uh, sorry, the re- the reverse or the same. It's the same thing. But one the culture that works in one doesn't work in the other. And so I think that what's the I guess for us right now the the most interesting thing to talk about or to to try to solve for is how do we how can we ourselves act in ways with within our communities and people we can connect to and uh, and engage with us how do we bring the not yet forward in a way that that provides confidence you know trust and and some level of peace it's not going to be like the fantasy that 
you know, we, we understand what our future looks like. I mean, I don't think that that will happen. But I think there's a, a way for calling forward the people who are, have been building experiments and playing with uh, models and working with large companies or organizations and startups and you know whatever at whatever level there's we have to find um, uh, like the this this the the mechanism that allows for us to understand how where how we go forward from here because um, we can't unsee that that the pandemic is possible and it could you know cause bring our cities and our companies and our economies and our healthcare systems to a halt. Um, you know, we can't not see it once we saw it. And it's sort of now that we saw it, what do we do about it? Yeah. I mean, we had some uh, conversations with uh, people like my, uh, Michelle Bowens and uh, Thomas Diaz. And of course, we talked about this, the, the global local kind of interplay and maybe what new kind of institutions or or maybe i don't know if we, it's even right to call call it institutions but the ways of organizing that we are very interested in right like so you can connect to a global knowledge uh, sphere and then have production uh, of of goods and the things that you need at the at the very local scale so i think it's something that you're getting at here so you can have a community of peers and that could actually be in the virtual space yeah Whereas you also need this really going to the hyper-local connection uh, and really connecting not only to pe with people, but also to the land and to the, the customs and the culture in place. Yeah, I think, I think that that's the dance that, that, we have, um, that we have the capacity because the interdependence is clear. You know, we're, we're connected. We're, we are, whether we like it or not, whether we un understand it or accept it, the fact is that you know, bi biology connects us everywhere in the world. And so, you know, these kinds of, that's why I say, you know, biology or nature is shaping us in the 21st century. And the fantasy that we're shaping it, I think is, even with synthetic biology and other things, it's, um, you know, one of my favorite quotes is, is, you know, nature bats last, that the reality is we can have whatever fantasy we want, but in the end, you know, we, we're living on, on this planet. And so the game, I think, is really, like you said, we live at a local level and we have a physical, social, even socially distant or otherwise a social relationship with people as a physical space. And then in the virtual space, you know, there, there's the opportunity, whether it's like apolitical that has a global platform connecting public servants all over the world. And there's communities of people who are operating with policy and different programs in South Africa or Canada or Italy and Chile who are, you know, sharing their experiences and their data and stories and building trusted relationships to to collaborate and learn in ways that will hopefully benefit not only their communities but all of us and i think that's the you know that's sort of the the little dance there's a thing that's happening with with respect to like a lot of the work that we've done in the last 10ish years is around trust and empathy is is one of those things where we we trust people like us and people who aren't like us 
you know, are harder to trust because we don't actually fully understand them, which is where the leaning in on empathy uh, has to come from. Because like we saying we is a is a kind of a declaration of trust. If we are we, then we're all bumped into the same, you know, bunched into the same bucket. If it's them, it's a declaration of like, I don't care about them, or they're not me, or they're not us, or they're, you know, they're different somehow. And I feel like that what drives learning is friction is, you know, like startup as a, as an entrepreneur, you, you always say, or believe that if you're not breaking things, if you're not falling, if you're not making mistakes, then you're not innovating, you know, you're not really doing something new, you're doing, you're doing something you understand if there's no mistakes being made. And so I think the same is true, which is if we're only talking to people that already agree with us, there's really no learning. And so whether we're a company or a community or us as the three of us, you know, we have to be pathologically committed to continuing to find the edges of our comfort level, you know, otherwise the learning doesn't happen. And how we do that, like as an ecosystem and as a scaling thing, like from a if we go back to not yet, for me, not yet is we have a bunch of ideas and there's, you know, you, you two have been doing these podcasts with very lovely, bright people who have been working for decades on a variety of ideas and platforms and philosophies. And, and we, and we just saw, you know, Mark Andreessen and other people like very focused on, okay, this is time for building. And, and I agree, it is time for building. It's, you know, between no more and not yet is is kind of the innovator's dream. It, it's it's not the innovator's dilemma. You know, and and I think that it's a crisis. It's a scary time, but it's an an opportunity to actually accelerate something that we believe that it's time for something new. That it's time for something more. Go ahead, Simona, you were going to say. Well, I mean, uh, this conversation was uh, so generative, so it's, it's really hard to focus only on one of the points that brought to my uh, mind and understanding as, just as a starting point. But I think that uh, I was thinking when you were speaking that, uh, first of all, we, we spoke about the idea of working in new ways you know, and how these new ways of working are going to probably create a different kind of organization. You spoke about ego, for example. And I was thinking about Bonita Roy's work on collective intelligence practice and, and, and teams and, and really this idea of uh, creating these orga organizations as ways where uh, places where this collective and, and learning can really happen. So at, at the end of the day, it's about building new institutions. So the, the question is, in a world where the small, the individual, powered by platforms is becoming uh, more and more important, and uh, so, so the, the question is, what makes the case for an institution? And most likely, I think these new institutions that we cannot describe yet, uh, these are that the we, we need to build, you know, as Mark Anderson Andresen said, Uh, it's not just about building companies, it's really about building these institutions. And they also need to be able to interoperate with the technosphere that we have now, because you, you brought also the topic, there's the pandemic now. No? So, so we also need to be able to deal with that. So how is this new technosphere, I think, uh, is the question that we have uh, now on the table. So how is it going to be like? Is it going to be like a more, just more rock, local or more resilient? Because... I think if we believe that we can build a, a new 
technosphere, a new ways, way of organizing globally and just uh, trying to be more resilient. Uh, it's like, you know, uh, betting that we can beat uh, nature of, at being exponential. So therefore, maybe we need some epistemically different framing of why we organize. And Sina was talking about this idea to uh, re-embed organizing in the landscape and in the community. That is one of the, the topics that we also discussed in the in the past. Yes. I mean, I, I think that the other question, you know, and both of you are having a lot of these discussions with people you have on the show is just, are institutions necessary? W- will there be institutions or, you know, is there, in order to have the governance that, that uh, will kind of be the gating body or something, a uh, coordinating body, you know, are institutions necessary? With, with widely distributed, because the infrastructure has the potential of creating a different kind of trust in theory. I'm not, I'm not proposing this, like I'm not convinced of this. I'm just asking the question that, you know, I think, yes. For example, like people who listen to your podcast are in the middle of watching their organizations be rethought you know, and a lot of companies, a lot of uh, organizations are trying to figure out, like Sina referenced, you know, that people are working from home. That's changed the model in a lot of people's minds. Like I've worked from home for a long time and so probably have both of you, but most of the world hasn't. So, you know, the value of, of real estate, the way people think about cities, the way companies think about the built environment and the way that they monitor, manage, oversee performance and work, many things change. If we are able to make the shift to distributed work as a function of responding to the current crisis, you know, doesn't that change the way that we think about work organizations, the value of cities? Like, I mean, a lot of different aspects of, of our existence are in flux. So I'm just making the comment that I think that the not yet relates to effectively infrastructure and institutional or kind of a a understanding of trust, um, whether that's around uh, and particularly around risk and value, you know. Lisa, can I be provocative? Please. (laughs) I wish you would. Because this looks like, you know, uh, I, I was listening to Zizek uh, a few few days ago, and he was uh, talking about some kind of uh, identifying the COVID as a, as, a, as a moment where you know capitalism cannot uh, proceed as it is. You know, now it has two options: one is to become a, a neoliberal neoliberal surveillance fascism, basically. And uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, some kind of rational communism, <laughs> let's say. And and what you're talking about, you know, uh, sometimes it reminds me this idea that uh, Chinese government is trying to apply at scale of uh, this social, uh, techno, uh, uh, technologically powered network uh, that where everybody's connected and everybody's identified and 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 trusted on the basis of uh, real data uh, in, in a collectivist uh, vision. So, so what, what can we uh, maybe uh, learn from looking at China, for example, 
uh, as a maybe a harbinger of uh, things to come in how we organize uh, at scale uh, if we want to keep uh, modernity i guess because sometimes you know the other options look looks, look like we just need need to get rid of modernity uh, and and look for something else because uh, uh, i don't see how we can uh, get stuck in, in, in a modern, uh, digitalized, uh, connected uh, civilization and not uh, deal with uh, the need to, 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 to maintain a certain coherence like the Chinese are doing. Yeah, so you're saying that if you go down the techno path, you, you basically trade liberty for security under the guise of security and you use data and surveillance as a way to manage a society? Not just, you know, I want to add a nuance because I think it's important. Uh, is that it's not just trading liberty, it's trading a certain worldview maybe uh, that is mes- less systemic than, than the Asian culture's worldview that makes that kind of society possible. And also another thing that, of course, we need to keep in mind in the difference that between us Western societies and Chinese is that in China, uh, social media, uh, the age of social media, uh, uh, so this explosion of exponential technology happened inside an existing political structure that could somehow make sense of the technology. And in the West, instead, we had this explosion, this exponential technological explosion, you know, with political systems that, of course, you know, you were, they weren't ready to. Uh, you know, to to, to, com- to comply with that. I don't I don't yeah. know how to say, but they, they were clearly not adequate. But it's it's also those examples are very culturally. You know, this goes back to the comment that <clears throat> the cultures are shaping what's possible, right? That that like um, the U.S. sees everything as. Uh, you know, we're, we're individuals and sort of like, leave me alone, I can do whatever I want. So telling people that they have to abide by certain rules is, is for some people automatically perceived as like, you're, you're doing something that, that is against the fundamental aspect of being American. Um, The Chinese are, are basically looking at kind of, it's, it's for the greater good of China. And we act this way, because that's kind of what we believe at a societal level. The technology has has the right to support that. Um, in the UK or in Europe, you know, like a lot of the these um, tracker apps around COVID have been thought to, they're it's looked at from the point of view of privacy, not 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 taking away liberty as in the US and not part of a, the better social good like in Asia. So. I mean, not all of Asia, but uh, China in particular. And I, I just have been watching how, like, so, so I guess one of the challenges and one of the things I've been uh, listening to people and reading and talking and observing over the years is just how do we create, you know, global transcultural um, standards at the same time, respecting the biases of the cultures that are inherently different and will hopefully maintain that diversity. You know, it's not trying to make everything follow one solution. 
I mean, going back to your to your original, so we because I've taken us down a, a crazy path, but uh, you know, going back to your original conversation and question about what does this mean for organizations and how do you know, from my view, how are we moving from the no more to not yet? You know, I'm really curious how how do we accelerate the not yet? You know, what's the mechanism by which, and if we look at history. Um, you know, when when there were other circumstances like this, where there was a, a break um, and an anticipated break and a visceral economic break in in the in the game in progress, uh, it was an opportunity for something else to take hold. And so, you know, I'm I think that we're at that moment, which is why I'm saying it's the innovators you know, dream at some level, uh, although at some level it's a nightmare, but it's creating a kind of, um, you know, opportunistic moment. And, and we know that it requires collaboration. And, um, and so I'm, I'm saying, you know, I mean, there's a way to do it from an autocratic culture that says, this is the way it's going to be. But in a, in a more, you know, decentralized, open, let's say, uh, not so tightly coordinated society. It, it works in a really different way. And so in the West, I, I mean, does it mean that we're the last ones that get the joke or, you know, is it possible to, to start to create, you know, uh, coalitions between companies and governments and communities that actively begin to shape the, the scaffolding around the not yet, realizing that, you know, this is their, the opportunity to, to actually help shape the future. Lisa, can this happen inside a corporation? Can this happen inside a, co- uh, a model of organization that is based on the modern corporate as we know it? Or we really need a completely different way of showing up and, and in the world and, you know, uh, interacting i mean it depends in my mind it depends on what it is i think that um you know when you were talking my first reaction is if it's a publicly traded corporation i think it's very difficult because the although again now that the stock market is um you know more than wobbly and uh and it's and nobody will can be held you know, no CEO or board of directors can necessarily be a- accused of um, creating the problem, right? They're responding. So the opportunity in this kind of moment for a corporation is actually we either um, take our assets and try to protect the part that we know, uh, the, the thing that's generating or used to generate a lot of revenue, like in a bank, you know, they, there's opportunities to to protect the revenue models that are you know the, the 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 favorites from the last 20 years, or there's an opportunity to basically say you know let's let's start to titrate a lot of um, whatever value we can rescue from there, and invest it into partnerships or or businesses that we know we need to be in, in, in you know based on where the world is pointed. Um, and it's really a matter of, you know, are you trying to, and, and if you're a publicly 
held company, I mean, in a traditional, in a normal circumstance, uh, you know, quarterly reports and all of that drive the bus. But in this circumstance, it's like I said, I mean, there's, there's few companies and few sectors that will, that will do well or yeah, and probably will actually do well in this instance, but everybody else is going to, is going to suffer pretty enormously. And so, for example, taking a, a bank, um, you know, looking at banks and insurance companies, like how much did the, how much did the fact that this happened and the pandemic and the consequences that it's had on the world thus far, and we don't know what it will have ultimately, you know, how will they perceive risk into the future? And what, what will that mean about what business they're in or who they perceive as, as viable clients and not, or as partners and not, and how will they build their networks and infrastructure and ecosystem? Or do they just go away and something else takes its place? Like if, if, if insurance companies don't want to deal anymore with certain kinds of issues and start writing pandemics and, uh, climate change out of all their policies, pretty soon the value of having the policy is it becomes zero. So then, you know, it's like in the old days in the shipping industry where uh, three or four shipping captains got together in England and created RSA, a an insurance company that basically was the four shipping captains, you know, kind of self-insured and created a little association between each other. And then when the London fire happened, they decided that they would extend that model to others. So in, you know, insurance companies are, are interesting historically in the sense that, you know, they started off being mostly mutuals or cooperatives and over time have changed. Um, maybe it's like you said, like, I think there's a cocktail here between um, modernity using tools and technology and our connectedness, um, but also linking to the understanding that um, if everyone c- contributes to value creation, but not everyone shares in capturing the value, then we have you know an unequal society from the from the start. And so there there are really interesting ways to to look at the not yet and to, to thoughtfully together test, test and build models that, that feel that we're leveraging the tools we have, but we're not disregarding each other. I don't know. I mean, I'm more full of questions than answers. Yeah. It feels like, you know, sometimes, uh, It's like this crisis in general, the, the coronavirus, but I would say also climate change, of which uh, coronavirus is probably an, an interdependent uh, manifestation, let, let's say. Uh, it asks us to respond to so many levels that it, it becomes overwhelming. You, know, you need to respond at the level of epistemological frames. You need to respond at the level of how you behave and you show up in the world, in your family, with your kids, with your friends, with, with your colleagues and so on, how you communicate. And, and also at the level how you organize, at the level how you think about finance, we need to think about uh, these, uh, all these layers, that which, which makes it quite overwhelming. So that's my, my feeling sometimes uh, uh, these days. 
Uh, but Bastina, maybe you can close with with uh, your reflection that we were sharing before the before the call. Yeah, and I think that um, that resonates well with what you just said. And I, I was um, I just thought about um, this. We've been exploring a little bit this initiative of reporting 3.0, and I think that's kind of resonates with this uh, not yet new kind of models that are acknowledging that even if we've gone to some extent uh, towards something that is not only um, looking after shareholder interests, there are, there are other models that go more towards the stakeholder capitalism and so on, but it's more or less everything in the same mix. And I think what it really needs to be pushed is that idea of, like you were mentioning, regeneration uh, you need to add something back and create a better society. It's not enough to sustain or to restore. And I think that's sort of, I see that as a horizon that we've touched upon a lot in this conversation. And uh, and it seems um, like that's that's some promise that lies ahead. And and what uh, you, Simone was referring to was that, uh, again, looking uh, a little bit back in time, um, I, I saw one... Uh, of your slides that uh, you had brought to one of the WeShare Fests where we have also been involved in the past. And it said that innovation can only be possible if you're optimistic. So I think that that's, uh, that's something that I, I felt in this conversation that uh, it shines through. And I don't know if you want to give any closing remarks on, on that uh, to round up. Well, I, I mean, I have to confess, I have been drinking more since all this happened. So, <laughs> but I, but um, yes, I, I think, Tina, you're, I do think that if you, um, you know, you see the world, we see the world from a, the place of making it better, or being open and being humbled by, uh, you know, the complexity. Um, but uh, it, it can be, like Simona said, very overwhelming. Um, so for me, I, I've tried to practice, uh, be, you know, growing where I'm planted, like start where, from where I am. Um, and so I'm in, you know, I find myself in Canada. I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning to speak Canadian, eh? And, uh, and I'm, you know, um, can't really meet people, but, you know, observing the world from here. And it's, it's actually quite interesting. Weirdly, I'm, um, literally across the lake from where Kodak used to be. So it, it's very, that's kind of weird, but, uh, and funny, but, um, yeah, I think the idea of growing where we're planted because where we, and it goes back to your comment about the local reality is we are interdependent and we are all connected and we have the challenges that we have are systemic global challenges. Um, but we have to start where we are, you know, and grow where we're planted. I mean, yeah. And so, um, I think that, I think that, I think we, we do what we can. We start the conversations we, we learn and we just keep, keep going. The idea that you guys, um, what you're working on with 3.0 uh, made me think about there's two different teams that I know. Um, one that's working with MIT on the COVID data observatory and another team that's working uh, with the WHO. And, and I'm really curious to see because 
I, I was seeing that thinking the idea of a ob global observatory is, is an important first step. And that maybe on the not yet, when we look at things like um, design of ecosystems or um, building in uh, what does trust look like or what do organizations look like, um, that maybe there's a, that kind of phenomenon where we begin to open a kind of observatory and build a coalition of, of participants and start to share what we're seeing and build, a, because we need to build a language and um, an understanding of, of, of what we're addressing. You know, what, is, what does infrastructure look like in, in terms of where we're heading? Well, this model of uh, observatory, I think it's a good uh, image, you know, to, to describe and to close this conversation and describe really what is the future of organizing, what does the future of organizing looks like, look like uh, at the moment from here. It looks like an, an observatory because we really need to, uh, I think, observe more of the of the coming uh, months and, and years and really try to, I think, learn, uh, as you said, uh, multiple times in, in the conversation, Lisa. So, well, uh, I'm really thankful for this conversation. It was uh, very insightful for me. I have like uh, tons of notes uh, on my iPad and, um, and really I think our listeners will have enjoyed uh, as much as I did. Um, Stina, do you want to add something something else? No, I echo you. Thank you very much. And uh, despite some technological issues, I hope we <laughs> managed to piece things together. <laughs> well, thanks to, to both of you for the, for the conversation. I'm actually quite intrigued by the idea of, um, you know, creating an observatory together with you guys and uh, maybe some of the listeners. That's how it feels like to also to record this podcast sometimes. So thanks, thanks again, Lisa, and and uh, see you, see you soon. Thank you for listening to Boundaryless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to our podcast by looking up for Boundaryless Conversation podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for more general research updates, where you can also find opportunities for learning and free tools for you and your team to design platform strategies in these turbulent times. This podcast has been brought to you by our research sponsor, Intesa San Paolo. We want to also thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music. <laughs>